I really don't want to talk too long because the partners are so interesting. I will try to make it as short as possible to open up the debate. And I didn't, wasn't aware of this in advance, but I like what I was told now half an hour ago, this shift towards why Europe today. Because it's so fashionable among many enlightened leftists in Europe to play this masochist game of so-called anti-eurocentrism. You know, like, whatever happens in the third world, I remember, maybe you remember it some 25, 30 years ago, for example, Rwanda Creek. All my radical left front friends told me, oh, it must be an after effect of European imperialism and uh, neocolonialism and so on and so on. No, I think that in today's world, if we see where things are going, and after, let's face it, the fiasco of Latino-American leftist populism, Europe, of course, not the existing, simply Europe in Brussels and so on, but I'm, I'm an unashamed idealist here. I will say the idea of Europe, in the Hegelian sense of this term, is still, I'm sorry to tell you, not only the best thing, but maybe even the only thing that we have. What do you mean by this? It may sound a crazy thing for a leftist to say. Where do we stand today? Uh, it's fashionable to say by critics of communism that whatever you say about communism, not only was it a humanitarian catastrophe, but economically it doesn't work. Unfortunately, we have today a case of Communist Party in power, which economically not only it works, but it created the only genuine economic miracle of the last decades. Are you aware what China achieved in the last decades? Forget about British industrialism or whatever. I don't think there was ever in the history of humanity such a creation of new wealth. They lifted out of poverty three, four hundred million people. Such an economic boom as China did it. Now you will say, I know, I suspect that I know. Yes, because they allowed capitalism. That's not enough. I spoke with a person who was, I don't want to put him into trouble, uh, so I will not tell his name, close to the daughter of Deng Xiaoping. And he told me that just uh, after the death of Mao Zedong, he spoke with her, the daughter, who was, you know, when, when Deng Xiaoping was dying, he was barely able to speak, and she was the only one who was able, like, to follow. And she said that, when Deng Xiaoping was dying, some high nomenclatura members came to him and asked him this, kissing the ass question, like, what is the greatest thing you did? Everybody expected that he will say, opening up China. He said, no, that I resisted at that point with economic reforms, also full Western democracy. That I said, no, stop, the party has to remain in power. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, I'm not 
embracing. I don't think we should become like China. I think that, unfortunately, he was right. The successful formula is precisely new authoritarian capitalism. It's another form of what you quoted with Nancy Fravor, this progressive, but this time it's not progressive, authoritarian neoliberalism. Economically, full participation in the free world market, politically an authoritarian regime. My right-wing friend, but who is not an idiot, Peter Sloterdijk, said, asked an interesting question. If 50 years from now they will be building monuments around the world, to which person they will build it from our epoch? Sloterdijk's answer is Lee Kuan Yew, the founder of modern Singapore, who invented this formula of very successful eco uh, uh, economic authoritarian, uh, economically capitalist but authoritarian regime. And uh, so what's the uh, achievement of China? And I think China is even our main danger to avoid the idea that I'm praising China. Le the left in 20th century hated mostly, if I simplify it a little bit, two things. On the one hand, this pure, brutal, unbridled liberal capitalism, and at the same time, a strong authoritarian state. What China did is to combine the two in an extremely successful way. And are we aware of the irony of what goes in China? The most dangerous profession Forget about you can be for capitalism, even for Western ideas, they tolerate it. The really dangerous thing today in China is to be a Marxist obsessed with ecological concerns. Then you know that they are now serially arresting Marxist students there and so on and so on. So uh, uh, I am not, first, I don't want to stigmatize China. Often we project things onto China, but we are already doing them in a more subtle way. For example, you know that in China you already have this form of digital control and it's developing in such a fast way that ideally, but they are almost there. Every citizen has a, it's in the state, of course, computers, his, her, their let's say, identity, where his good points, bad points are noticed. For example, if you are convicted of something, if you engage in dissident activity, you lose points, or blah, blah, blah. And these have very concrete consequences. I read somewhere, these are official statistics, that in 2018, 30 million people were prohibited buying fast train tickets and uh, plane tickets because they're patriotic standard or whatever <laughs> was too low. Now, my point is what? It's easy to make fun of this. Yeah, yeah, China, primitive orientals. We, if there is something to learn from all this Google, Cambridge Analytica and so on, uh, is that we are doing the same things. Think. And the big problem is what to do against this tendency this new authoritarian capitalism. In India, it's the same, Narendra Modi. In uh, This combination of economically successful capitalism with authoritarian, usually religiously or ethnically nationalist ideology dominating, and we are there. Did you read what happened a couple of days ago in Poland, in a northern city? 
I'm not saying it's a central event, but it's a clear sign. There was the first after the good old, I mean it ironically, Nazi times, public burning of the books. Local Catholic priests brought on a market in front of a church a big package of books, some Harry Potter novels and so on, and they burned them publicly. And media just took notice of it and so on and so on. That's where we are. So, quickly, not to lose time, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, that we should ask ourselves, such a schizophrenic state needs ideology, ideology. Today, I think, far from the idea that we live in a post-ideological state, ideology is stronger than ever. What type of ideology? I would like to take as a starting point Marx's, old Marxist notion of uh, religion as opium of the people, not for the people. For the people is a naive enlightenment idea that there are secret priests who produce opium. And although we still have religion as the opium for the people, different forms of fundamentalism, Muslim, Hindu, uh, uh, Christian, and so on, there are three others opiums today that we should fight. Sorry, uh, yes, opium should be built. Uh, another one is expertise. Are we aware in many economic debates how Expert knowledge is fetishized. It's simply referred to as economists said this, experts said this, and it's mostly uh, bullshit. I will give you an extremely simple example. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez made now this green sorry, <laughs> proposal where the idea is to spend a lot of money, tremendous amounts for ecology, and economic experts immediately predicted, this is madness. You cannot spend money like that. I'm sorry, but from my totally naive standpoint, I'm saying, if historical experience shows something, is that you can do it, and if you do it in the right way, it works extremely well, even uh, economically. How did, what was the thing that drew United States out of the crisis, finally. It was World War II with incredible spending, just empty spending, in the sense that it was not immediately productive. It was just you spend it for arms. Didn't Reagan do the same? And the, uh, Trump, Trump is doing today the same. So we have expert knowledge that we should distrust, at least certain type of. But now comes my big point, of course, uh, I think we have two other very important opiums of the people, which are, if you know dialectical spirit, you will not be surprised by my answer, opium and the people. First, opium. Are you aware what role, and opium is here for me, a condensation for, from simple sleeping pills, antidepressants, to real opium? According to some analysis in the United States, about 80% of people who work in academia, professors, students, are already on Xanax or some type of drugs and so on and so on. So it's this opium. Then I think people as the opium of the people, of the opium of the people. That's why, I'm sorry, she's not here, we could debate it. That's why I'm skeptical about the formula of, uh, promoted by Chantal Mouffe of links populismus. 
She says, it works. Well, my first answer is, sorry, where does it work? In Venezuela or where? I mean, the only regime where leftist government did it relatively well is in Bolivia. They are much more moderate. I know vice president is sort of my friend, Alvaro Garcia Linera. They are much more cautious. They do a good job. The problem with populism for me is that first, it's usually associated with stronger nation state. The idea is the enemy is international capital. The way to fight it is stronger nation state, which then could allow us to pass more workers' protection laws, and so on, and so on, and so on. I don't think this works, if you ask me. I think that the only way to fight international capital is with new internationalism. And I think that precisely issues that we are confronting today, ecological crisis, new forms of digital control, and so on, all ask, demand a new form of internationalism. So that I don't speak too long, just let me then go quickly through what are the problems that I see today. First, it's of course ecolog ecology, ecological problems. And I think if you just do a kind of a spectral analysis of different ideologies associated with ecology, first one is the Donald Trump ideology. You ignore the problem. Oh, it's a pseudo problem invented by some crazy leftists who want to destroy American way of life. Okay. No. We shouldn't lose time with that. The second one is uh, uh, leave it to market forces. You know, we should just do taxation and so on. I think problems are too serious to leave it to that. The third way to deal with it is, uh, is trust in science. Don't worry, soon there will be fusion, clear, uh, uh, clear source of energy, and so on and so on. Science will take care of it. I also don't trust this one. Now we come to ideology, ideology proper. The most dangerous, almost, no, okay, there is one which is not so dangerous, but I find maybe most disgusting. This basically conservative idea, and even many, Deep leftist, deep ecologists uh, uh, accept it. The idea is we offended Mother Earth. We ruined the natural balance. The source of trouble is human hubris. So we should limit ourselves to our proper place in nature and so on and so on. I absolutely reject this approach, not because I'm not such a pessimist, because I'm more of a pessimist. Very many, one friend of mine, an intelligent ecologist, wrote a book called uh, Ecology Without Nature, claiming that if you want to be really a radical ecologist, you cannot elevate nature into a kind of a substantial mother, natural rhythm, balance to which we should return, which should set standards. Listen, think just about our sources of energy, oil, coal. Can you even imagine what kind of mega ecological catastrophes happened on our earth well before humankind was here? 
if nature is our mother, it's a deep pit of a dirty mother, to put it like this. And you see, this doesn't mean, oh, we can't do anything. No, it means there is no simple way back to some natural balance. But the real danger, I think, is a certain everyday ecology propagated by media, by big companies, and so on. The logic is this one, and that's Altax's ideology, everyday ideology at its purest. They say, but who are you just to criticize the state, to blame others? Did you do your duty? You think you are, you are pure? Like when I had a debate with a writer called, it's a beautiful name, Will Self in London. He pathetically appealed to the people in the hall and said, show me, don't you have iPhones? Do you know that they all use uh, Coltran or what? A mineral and so on and so on. Like we should all be guilty. That's one side of the story, and then comes the moralizing. Then they say, did you do your duty? Uh, did you separate all Coca-Cola cans? Did you put all the newspapers? You know, this is ideology, because it makes you personally responsible with a clear message, don't criticize society. Do your proper job, and then always at the same time, it offers you an easy way out, like... Uh, recycle, separate, and you can, basically the message is, you can go on being a consumerist that you are. I think that ecology is a serious problem. Why? Because it is absolutely clear from what scientists, and I don't, don't want to fetishize experts, I know how little we know about the logic of global warming, whatever we call it, but that... Uh, uh, you cannot regulate it simply through the market. A transnational coordinated action, once we call this some version of communism, will be necessary. A friend of mine, excellent theorist of catastrophes, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, D-U-P-U-Y, told me that he was in Fukushima, part of some European delegation, three days after that tsunami, and that he knows firsthand there that for a couple of hours, the Japanese government was in a total panic because they thought that they will have to evacuate the entire uh, Tokyo area, 30 million people. And we will confront that situation. Who will do it in what way? Now, I will say something very problematic. I think that we cannot simply say, let the people speak. We should open ourselves to the people. This is, for me, a more refined but no less dangerous form of populism. This is one of the remainders of Maoism that I don't like. I respect ordinary people. No, this is even too patronizing to say. But don't uh, elevate them into some kind of ordinary source of wisdom so that we corrupted intellectuals, whatever. No. We, Talk with ordinary people, you will discover their worries, their anxieties, but you will not get any deep message what to do from them. We have to reinvent it. Even democracy in this immediate sense, let's ask the people, doesn't do the job. Second danger, I already mentioned it, digitalization of our lives. It's not only the total control. The old police state was rather naive. You know, you were small dissident, yes, and you turned your head quickly, you saw three Stasi agents following you, whatever, and there were limits to this. I mean, 
you cannot have all people controlled like this. With today's strong computer, you can do it. We can all have individual files. Everybody can do it. But what I fear more is some is the uh, is uh, this idea of the popular term by of Elon Musk is now uh, Neuralink, wired brain, the direct contact of our brain with the computer, and in this way we can share experiences, direct mind-to-mind -mind contact, and so on and so on. It's not science fiction. At a certain still modest level, it's already happening. I think this is a tremendous danger. New ways of how we will be controlled without even knowing that we are controlled. Let me amuse you with a story which already you know, but it's for me a kind of a symbol. I have very many weird friends. One of them is making this type of experiments of controlling human minds, digitalizing them. And he told me a terrifying story. They already know how to control rat, the disgusting small animal, no? So that they already can do it so that you wire their ner the rat's nerves and by a computer, to cut a long story short, you have a box, you press the button, and you control the nerves which direct the rat running around. I saw a video. You press a button, and then a rat becomes a remote-controlled car. You can steer it around. Now, my friends are very evil in a progressive sense. They said, let's try the same with humans. They are afraid to go with this in public. And the result is pretty sad. Which result? <laughs> they ask themselves the right question. If you are controlled in this way, it's still very elementary, but it's progressing. How will you experience? Let's say I walk here as a nervous idiot that I have around, and then you, Robert, the evil guy here, you press the button, you can... Will it be, oh my God, some foreign force is controlling me? No. The first results are horrible. I will still think that I act freely. And this is, I think, the new type of control that we are confronting today. The most dangerous freedom is the freedom that you don't even experience as, uh, I'm sorry, it's unfreedom that you don't even experience as a limitation of our freedom. You think you are totally free. You serve the internet, buy things, whatever. Everything is registered. You are subtly controlled and so on and so on. And now to conclude, I'm approaching the end. Back to the third problem that I see Flüchtlinge, refugees, immigrants, Europe, and so on. The ideological hypocrisy in this field, I find it staggering. And I know how problematic is what I'm saying, because I was told by right-wingers that my aim is to destroy Western culture. I was told by leftists of being a philosopher of Alternative für Deutschland, and so on. I'm neither. I'm just like you, extremely worried about the rise of rightist populism. And as my friend Robert already emphasized, we should ask here uh, uh, deeper questions. One way to confront this problem is to uh, play the wall game, Donald Trump game. It's mess out there. We are not part of it. So if we feel threatened, let's build walls. This, of course, doesn't work. Why not? For the obvious reasons that 
Today we live in one world. We are all part of it. Look, where do refugees come from? Many of them. Iraq, Syria. This is not their imminent for, because of inner tensions war. The mega mistake was attack on American attack on Iraq. And it's such a beautiful piece of irony. Did you notice it? That uh, precisely, you know, this was a nice moment of European politics. When the United States uh, announced their plan to attack uh, Iraq, you remember, this was a moment of glory of West Germany and Fr uh, France nonetheless. With many other West European powers, they opposed it. While the Visegrad post-communist government, they supported it, which is why they were celebrated by Donald Rumsfeld as the new Europe, and so on and so on. And, but isn't it a beautiful irony that they are now, although they participated in the process which triggered refugees, they are now the main uh, opponents of bringing in refugees and so on and so on. I think the main danger with Flüchtlinge is, again, humanitarianism. No, 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 I'm all for helping them, don't, but this idea of perceiving it as a humanitarian problem. There are refugees there, what do we do? Are we human or not? Do we help them or not? And so on and so on. What's my problem here? That if you act like this, you are destined to lose it. You act against that concept. The first thing to do is to act, I don't like the word preemptively, but to ask ourselves how do we participate in the processes which create refugees. Uh, uh, for example, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is a key factor in the Syrian war. Saudi Arabia should be isolated or whatever. Or for me, for example, this is for me a mega scandal. There are many refugees in Middle East, Arab and other countries, but only in the poor countries. The, that rich series of countries, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, let's name them, Bahrain, uh, Qatar, Emirates, they simply don't take refugees and so on. So there is, uh, and there are this would be one so problem for me. It, uh, this uh, the other solution. This leftist humanitarian man. We are guilty Europeans. So let's just open the borders. Everybody can come in and so on and so on. Thanks. Then you will have in twenty years all Europe in the hands of in the hands of populists, and then they will be doing what all Marxists always like to do. The best Marxist books are already always reports on the failure, you know, very convincing books or why, on why things went wrong, why Hitler had to win in Germany, why Stalin had to win uh, in, in, uh, uh, in Soviet Union, and so on and so on. I think that, that, again, what we have to do is, for example, in Africa, where also many refugees are coming. Don't change it into a humanitarian problem. Ask yourself, how do we, developed West, participate in the process which is causing refugees? Look at, for me, one of the nightmarish places of the earth, Democratic Republic of Congo, which is 
state, so-called rogue state, central government doesn't function, local warlords operate there, but as such it's fully integrated into global capitalism. What about that? What about another fact, not written a lot about, that here we Europeans and Americans are not guilty. It's mostly uh, Arab countries and some Asian countries like South Korea, Japan and others. They are massively buying the best arable land in many poor, in many poor Arab countries, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Madagascar and so on, growing mostly industrial plants for export and so on and so on. We should shift the terrain to this level. The last thing with refugees, I think that again, we should step out of this deadlock where on the one side there are uh, anti-immigrant racists, we should absolutely clearly reject them, populists, but the right answer to them is not. No, there are no problems with immigrants, of course there are problems, not because they are bad or, or we are bad, but there is a certain incompatibility of ways of life. I don't, uh, I, don't, uh, I don't blame anyone here, but if we will not talk openly about these problems, I remember, then we are lost. I remember a couple of years ago, there was a big scandal, but it was downplayed by the left in England. It happened in the mid-British city, 100,000 people, Rotterdam. It was admitted, even by left liberal media like Guardian, that it was a nightmare. What happened there was that they discovered that the Pakistani youth gang uh, serially, systematically raped for years over 1,000 young, white, but very well selected from poor families, girls. And uh, Parents of these girls tried to, uh, tried to, uh, tried to uh, mobilize police. Police said, no, 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 if we investigate this, we will be accused of Islamophobia and so on and so on. I think this is not respect for Islam. This is treating them, as you would put it, in a paternalist way. It's explosively dangerous. That's how you create votes for, for the new right and so on and so on. We simply have to talk openly about all these problems. Also, anti-Semitism in Europe. Uh, uh, something extremely dangerous is emerging recently, what I call uh, Zionist anti-Semitism. And its father is, I'm not kidding here, Reinhard Heydrich, that guy, who wrote in '36, we wish Jewish people all the best. You find the quote in two, three times in my books. But not here. Go to Palestina, we will support you there, just not here. Let's not mix. And that's the formula of all today's right-wingers. Breivik, the Norwegian guy who killed 80 young socialists, he wrote in his manifesto, Jews, we should absolutely support them there as a wall against Islamists, but we don't need them here. And unfortunately, the... Israeli government is playing these games. I remember when half a year ago Netanyahu called to French Jews to come to Israel because there is anti-Semitism in France. The French anti-Semitic Reich enthusiastically greeted this. Yeah, yeah, we agree with him. Go, 
go to Israel, just not here. So you know what should be our position here? Not the naive one, there is no anti-Semitism in Europe, it's only Islamophobic fantasy and so on. There is, but it's a naive moralist stance, but it's the only realist one for me. It's that the fight against anti-Semitism here and the fight against what Israel is doing on the West Bank are two sides of exactly the same struggle. You know, we should reject this victimizing logic from both sides. We should reject when Arabs say, okay, we are a little bit anti-Semitic, but what Israel is doing now to us, it's the same thing that Jews suffered in the World War II, or exactly the same thing is done by aggressive Zionists who say, basically, that, uh, that uh, after we suffered so much in the Holocaust, who has the right to reproach us for anything, and so on, and so on. It's so important to be universalist today. So now to conclude, really, I think that the only... Now I was just a pessimist. I, in a wild improvisation, uh, uh, enumerated these uh, different uh, problems we are facing with. We need not the existing Europe, the way it is, Brussels bureaucracy and so on and so on, although even there, I wouldn't agree that it's all just bad. I had a debate with an English friend who said, uh, Brussels bureaucracy is international capital and so on and so on. So I asked another friend something very interesting, to bring me the list of all the conflicts between British government and Brussels bureaucracy in the last 20, 30 years. Sorry, almost in all the cases, I'm on the side of Brussels. For example, I remember in Tony Blair years, there was a Brussels directive of maximum work weeks for, uh, sorry, work hours for week to prevent workers being exploited too much. Blair government protested, it will limit our competitivity. Then some ecological standard Europe tried to impose. Uh, again, British government protested and so on and so on. So even although it's not so bad, I still think that uh, what we need desperately today to fight all these problems, like who will control these new modes of digital control, Neuralink and so on, who will... You, it, cannot be, it cannot be left to private companies. It also cannot be simply left to the political structure that we have today. We need new forms of, I call it naively, democratic mobilization, which should be, at least in the beginning, pan-European. We have to step beyond national Borders. We need international. We need. Uh, we need international cooperation. And I don't worry too much. It may look that we are lost. And as you, Peter, told me, I agree. It. There is a certain projection that loss is already our fate. And we shouldn't fight it by saying no. The situation is not so bad, and so on and so on. We should confront the crisis. If things we, enlightened Europeans, and I'm not ashamed of this term, I hate this idea of Euro, Europe is the source of our evil and so on and so on. Sorry, but even those who criticize Eurocentrism usually do it by st 
strictly relying on emancipatory rhetoric developed as part of European enlightenment, and so on, and so on. So uh, what I'm saying is that uh, Europe has to offer something to the world, my God. The entire emancipatory tradition of modern times, from feminism to workers' rights, healthcare, and so on and so on, is something that is strictly part of the European legacy. Now I'll say another aggressive thing. I don't buy that bullshit that, yes, but pre-modern societies have a role of women important. Look at it closely. First, it's mostly ideology. I love it. I read a report on that. Uh, in New Guinea, I think, of a tribe which was officially matriarchal, ooh, feminine divinity, even like their village looked like this. The central sacred place was even formed like, like a vagina, you know, like. Okay, only one problem, only men had access to that, <laughs> to that place, you know. No, I mean, feminine, I warn feminists not to fall into this Jungian, Referring to Carl Gustav Jung, topic of we Europeans emphasize too much the masculine principle, we should return to some feminine principle, and so on. No. I proudly reclaim Cartesian, talking about Descartes' tradition. Do you know, it's a thing that I don't think many of you know. You know who were the first modern, in theory, feminists? Ah, this is not yet known, because we are so much uh, uh, hypnotized by this idea that Descartes, uh, rational imperialism, women followers of Descartes, okay, mostly rich, of course, educated French women, asked why they said, because cogito doesn't have a sex. It's, it opens up a space. I quote in my book precise sources of this first Cartesian, because this is modern feminism. It's not oh, a balance, we have more to emphasize feminine element and so on and so on. It's to accept the radical ultimate contingency of your sexual, uh, of your sexual uh, identity. So, uh, uh, to conclude, where do I see, uh, so that I don't get lost, yes, sorry. On the one hand, you know, it's a subtle logic of fate. We shouldn't say it's not so bad, we may have a chance. It is very bad. And if the scenario goes on, it's a catastrophe. But, and here comes what we should learn from history. Hegel saw this very well. Look, Protestants believe in uh, predestination. It's fate. But there is a wonderful contradiction written in the very core of Protestantism. You would have thought that if there is predestination, I stay at home and masturbate and watch pornography. Like, it's all decided. No, precisely by this belief in faith, Protestantism grounded an extremely active attitude. And even you find traces of this even in Stalinism. This is the only good thing that I can say about Stalinism. They were determinist, necessity of communism, but at the same time they demanded extreme mobilization, as if, if we are not active. This means that we should read predestination in a much more intelligent way. Many intelligent Protestant theologists knew it. Predestination is our fate, but we, we can change in some sense the fate itself. If you accept it as fate and 
counteract it. We can, we can do it. There is an opening. There is an opening. There is an, uh, there is an opening there. And uh, again, I think that where we are fighting for Europe today, for the idea of Europe, and don't tell me this idea is an illusion. It's an illusion which still mobilizes people. That's why what gives me f hope for Europe is that, my God, all the bad guys today hate Europe. There is no Putin, Trump. Trump is now sending, okay, not literally, he's in better relations with him, but you know what Steve Bannon did now? I was there, they showed the building to me. He opened up a school in Rome to educate right-wing populists how to bring this unity to Europe. Trump or Putin, Putin supports everyone just that it ruins European unity. It can be Catalonia, it can be Brexit, name it, and so on. Why? Why is Europe such a thorn? It's not just because it's still a global power. The idea of Europe still stands for something that is uh, traumatic, problematic in today's universe with this tendency towards uh, authoritarian capitalism. Europe doesn't fit this model. That's why I think we should remain proud Europeans. We should get rid, yes, we did horrible things, but okay, everybody did them. But we should uh, resist this temptation of European masochism. You know, our main task is to be uh, anti-Eurocentric and so on and so on. No, we should say, sorry, there are great things which are the European legacy. They are threatened today. And yes, we should criticize Europe, but be a little bit of a philosopher and look at how the very instruments, conceptual, theoretical notions that we use to criticize Europe are strictly part of European legacy. And in India, when I was two years ago, they considered this to me. You know, uh, today's neocolonial power, they work very well, they love it when you have a nation which claims we should rediscover our old traditions and so on and so on. But look at India. Indian independence was effectively not enacted through return to some ancient traditions. It was to be very brutal, young, rich Indian liberals educated in Oxford, Cambridge, and so on and so on. Honest Indians admitted today that the true father of independence, what is good in India, it's not Gandhi, it's Ambedkar, who was an extremely crucial figure. Let's not get lost there. What I'm just saying is this thing, to conclude really now, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, look, what, how we should act, learn from the enemy. By disorder under heaven, I of course meant that famous Mao Zedong statement. I'm very critical of Mao Zedong, but I'm in love still with that statement. There is great uh, disorder under heaven, so the situation is excellent. Okay, it's not so excellent. Just remember, don't lose nerves, that what figures like Trump and so on mean is that the hegemony of the existing order is breaking up. We live in confused times. 
we no longer have, as we had till recently, for example, in the United States, forget about Democrats, Republicans, but they shared a whole set of presuppositions, you know. And that hegemony is broken, and we should not lose nerves here, but act. Take this, insofar as we can, as an opportunity. An example, I promise to you, Robert, don't kill me, uh, 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 to be the last. Uh, you know, leftists were so shocked when Trump proclaimed emergency, national emergency for a couple of thousand immigrants. Incidentally, you know what's my cynical reaction here? Does Trump at all believe in the greatness of America? I mean, is America really so weak that a couple of thousand of immigrants can destroy it and so on? I think the time for progressive Americans is not to say Trump is aggressively patriotic, but Trump is not, isn't it much more effective strategy? Trump doesn't believe in American greatness. He's anti-patriotic and so on. That, that, uh, um, and some intelligent right-wingers were shocked by that measure of Trump. And they said precisely their fear was right. They said <coughs> Trump set a horrible precedent. What if the next president, maybe, maybe not, I don't know, will be a more than ever left-leaning Democrat? What if he proclaims green national emergency? Trump said, you know, this is how we should act. Don't lose nerves. Enemy did something horrible, not just protest it. Ask yourself, can we use it? Can we turn it? This is the time for people to act. Not to look nostalgically at the old time of, Europe, of European or American hegemony, but I will conclude with a conservative, not another story, that was a conservative British poet who used, I often quoted, a nice metaphor in his very conservative book, T.S. Eliot, on the idea of Christian society. He said, sometimes only a radical heresy can save what is worth saving in a religion. Today, only a radical green left heresy can change the idea of Europe. That's our duty. Vielen Dank. Thank you. But as you know, Robert, we should fight this metaphysical linear notion of time as measured by machines and so on. Thank you. The big difference between Stalinism and fascism is that after a leader gives a speech, in fascism, the leader receives the applause. In Stalinism, the leader stands up and applauds himself. No? <laughs> I want nonetheless to follow the second tradition. Okay, so... Uh, I, I think uh, I'm almost afraid that where is blood between us? We seem to move in the same direction. So I will just, if you permit me, I hope, uh, you know, where I see, it's not that universalism does not mean, oh, we are all together one big family. I hate this, what I call UNESCO universalism. You know, those disgusting books published decades by go on world culture, and every culture is beautiful in its own way. No, every culture is horrible in its own way. Every culture has, how do you say, bodies, dead bodies in its closet. So I will tell you my experience, which I think at least conceptually shows the weight. 
Derrida, among others, told me this wonderful old, no, me, he uses it somewhere, but it circulates in my journal, this wonderful Jewish joke, which I think uh, uh, applies ideally, I will try to answer you what is false universalism, applies ideally to, and precisely about this nowhere, you know, we are nowhere, to our situation. I'm sorry if you know the joke, it's that in a, in a synagogue, Saturday or whenever Jewish believers meet and first the rabbi says in this self-humiliating way, oh my God, I am nobody, I betrayed you, I am not worth of your attention, I am a nobody, uh -uh. then a rich Jewish mer merchant stands up and said, oh my God, I am a nobody also, all my wealth is nothing, blah, blah, blah. Then a poor Jew stands up and says, uh, uh, my God, I'm also a nobody. And then the rich, it doesn't matter who, one of the two rich ones stabs the other and says, but who is this guy? He just thinks that he can be a nobody like us or whatever. <laughs> I had exactly the same experience in a debate in Vereinigten where it was about multiculturalism and so on. And... Uh, I warn you, there are now many very intelligent black theorists. They don't buy this bullshit, identity politics, whatever. They are very intelligent. Some of them even Hegelians. And one of them told me this experience. I was there. Uh, uh, you know, it was this multicultural and these white liberals, one after the other, said, oh, Eurocentrism, we are responsible to, uh, we are responsible of everything. We are bad. We cannot be blah, blah, blah. And then he told me that he stood up and said, in your spirit, but wait a minute, we also have our Muslim fundamentalists, you know, Louis Farrakhan and so on. We also have, and literally, they look, the white liberal, like, uh, wait a minute, no, no, you also want to be nothing. No, sorry, we are the ones who only can be. In other words, this, uh, here, I speak a little bit as not practicing psychoanalytical because, you know, once it happens to me from time to time that when I give some class, a student comes to me and says, can I go into analysis with you? And my answer is always the same. If you want this, you must really be in trouble. You know, you, like, uh, with all my nervous tics and so on. You in a, okay, so... Uh, 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 but nonetheless, I would like to... Ein Begriff zu verwenden, to apply this notion of mehr genuss, surplus. It, you should, when somebody humiliates himself too much, you should always ask, what's their secret profit? You know. And their profit is clear precisely by humiliating themselves. You find this so clear with this multi, this people of nowhere, as you would have put it. They apparently humiliate themselves. We are nowhere, blah, blah, guilty of everything. But this gives them a tremendous, I witness this almost on a daily basis in political debates, privilege. As such as nobodies, they think they have a monopoly on judging the others. I remember I had a wonderful debate, I'm sorry if you know the story, in Missoula, Montana, with some Native Americans, they don't like the name, and I don't. You know my old joke. They, one of them told me I much prefer to be called Indian. At least 
My name is a monument to white men's stupidity who thought they were in India. They immediately see this trap Native American. Ah, so we are nature, you are cultural Americans or what? So uh, how uh, this apparent self-humiliation reserved to you this position of zero point, you are above all particular identities, you are... So uh, the black guy then taught me, and I repeat this all the time, that the struggle should be for universality itself. Every white liberal loves it when black people want uh, African roots, our identity, our ancient wisdom. No, the true danger, but in a good sense, for us good, is blacks who say, no, your white people's universality is not yet truly universal. We must be, to put it like this, better Europeans than you. That's why I always celebrate, for example, I always almost cry when I read about Haiti revolution. It's the most beautiful, every leftist should cry. You know, when black slaves rebelled there, Napoleon sent an army. And all honor goes here to Jacobins, who immediately recognized Toussaint Louverture. Napoleon sent an army, killed them all, and then uh, the... French army approached the slave army, and they thought they, hear, they heard some songs from the black army, and they thought it must be some primitive African tribal songs, and they got shocked when they approached it. You know what the black army was singing? Marseillaise. And all honor goes here, because I didn't say many good things, to Polish regiment who changed sides. Said, oh, sorry, maybe we are right fighting on the... You, you see, the true struggle should be every position, even the most particular, has a certain notion of universality in it. it and we should fight. So the, the answer, I agree with you, is what was wrong in our universality so that we left out and to ordinary people it appeared that they had to protect their particularity and so on and so on. And uh, not to avoid this topic that you hinted at, this uh, uh, um, feminist LGBT polemics and so on. I am absolutely for LGBT plus, for me too and so on. But you know who are my ideals there. Remember this name, check it on internet, Tarana Burke, B-U-R-K-A. It's a black lady who really started Me Too before it became fashionable. And he wrote a public letter which was typically ignored. She started it as a mass movement of exploited women sharing their experience. And she is horrified at what became out of it. Instead of the focus of ordinary women, it became almost, I am ironic here, of course, a medium for failed actresses. Sorry, I was raped by that producer and so on and so on. The same is with LGBT+. You know what I really like in LGBT+. You must know my joke. This notion of LGBT+. Because as we know from psychoanalysis, uh, 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 plus is they use it in an empirical way. The idea is, and this I think went wrong with LGBT plus, that it got caught into identity politics, which means, as that's their story, we have two predominant identities, masculine and feminine, 
That's not enough, there are multiple identities. And then they try to bring about the latest official list is already approaching 40, boots, trigender, asexual, bigender, polyamorous, whatever. Uh, but then they worry that, they worry that maybe there are some other identities that we didn't yet discover. Uh, so they add the plus. I think we should read plus in a much more radical way. You can be a plus directly, precisely by identifying with the excess, with the surplus. And this is what we in Europe learn the world. Sorry for the arrogance, how to do it. Cartesian subject is ein plus. It's something that disturbs, uh, that disturbs identity. And which is why, for example, with LGBT plus, uh, transgender is a shattering experience. I've spoken with some of them, and they are not these beautiful, playful transgender people who, oh, I plastically redefine myself, I shift my identity, today I am a woman, then a man, then trigender, whatever. It, it's, a, it's a very tragic, painful position because they bring out the deadlock of sexual difference. I put it in very Hegelian terms at some point. Hegel's idea is that we, you have men, women, and you have transgender, which means the difference as such. A plus as uh, such. Second, so again, it's crucial not to cut this. Uh, and with me too, yes. You know what gave me hope? South Korea, I was there. They have a white Me Too movement there. But it's not this story of failed movie stars. It's a mass movement, women protesting, tens of thousands demonstrating, these all daily forums which are pretty depressive, how men exploit them. For example, a fashion now lately exploded in South Korea of men putting on Facebook, Instagram, whatever, the uh, photos taken of their intimate partners and sharing them and so on. And it's, uh, it can be done in a different way. The other thing about identity politics, I think, that we should raise is a much more dark, unpleasant question. I hope you will agree. It's, uh, yeah, but every identity, social identity at least, has its dark side. And the key point is... Can we get rid of it? Is it imminent to it? For example, I wrote books about emancipatory potential of Christianity. I'm not anti-Christian. But isn't it clear, I'm sorry if I repeat my old point, when we read about all these pedophiliac scandals, what shocks me is that you cannot interpret them to things prevent uh, the common sense interpretation. Okay, pedophiles are everywhere. Of course, they are also among the priests. No, first, the numbers, second, the way church defends them, it's clear that this is part of the, what I call, obscene subterranean identity of the church. They are literally a problem of the church as an institution. It's not just a problem of individuals and so on and so on. And I claim that many of male crimes, so-called, and I'm totally opposed to this brutality and so on, we should be attentive to this, and I agree here with feminists. They are not simply personal pathology. They, for example, in one of my books, I report on it. It's a horrible story of 
Uh, which is the city south of El Paso? I always forget. Santa city in, across the border in Mexico, where you have mass murders in a terrifying way, rape, mass rape, sorry? Yeah, yeah, mass rapes of women and so on. But if you look close at it, you see these are not individual outbursts of pathology. They are ritualized. They are a certain social symbolic form. The mystery is not the, the male brutality. That's why, to conclude, we should be so careful, my God, about, I think, this, you know, how we fight back so-called patriarchy. For example, I wonder if you agree to provoke you. I was shocked by this statement, we all know about it, of American uh, Psychological Association, which declared toxic masculinity an illness. First, are we aware what they did? Five decades ago, it was homosexuality, which was medicalized. Now they take a masculinity, aggressive, clear, social, ideological product, and they medicalize it. And it's wonderful because friends told me who are part of this process, you know, big companies, oh, they're already preparing pills against toxic masculinity, it's already part, but you know where I'm, what shocked me there? It's another thing. If you read the description of toxic masculinity, it goes, I quote, I repeat pretty liber literally, that it's a male attitude of when you are in a difficult situation, instead of reaching out to others, you enclose yourself into yourself and act out aggressively, hurting not only others, but maybe even yourself. I'm sorry, I'm just shocked here. In some situations, and we call this courage, you have to act like this. And the greatest examples that come to me, at least in history, and I will name you two examples, one ancient, one ultra-modern, are exactly women. If there was a toxically masculine agent, it's Antigone. Instead of going to Creon, let's debate, and so on, and so on, she stands on her own in a very dogmatic way, and sometimes we need dogmaticism. And so at the end, we will learn that Antigone is a man or whatever. No, you know what I worry? Here I do a more, more precise... Then they tell me, oh, but you want to defend uh, uh, men beating women. No, kill them. I'm one of the few persons that I know for death penalty. I don't get a problem with that. I'm just saying that we should be very pre precisely in defining toxic masculinity in this way. They do something very dangerous. They propose a certain much more conformist logic of don't act too radically, share it with others, and so on and so on. It's norm. I think it's part of new, it's part of new uh, conformism, conformism and so on. No? So, uh, sorry, not to lose time. So, what to do when you said it? I think, and I agree here with bo both of you, uh, uh, what you hinted at. First, what you said, I absolutely agree it. Yeah. You were cutting off my head, no, basically, yes, for time, yes. Uh, uh, you, uh, like what you said, that the only way even to show respect to Muslims, treat them like responsible adults, and 
debate openly all this with them, for example. One point that makes me explode is this. Whenever Muslims don't integrate, it's of course our guilt. We were not open enough towards them. Wait a minute, I read a leftist, leftist, I repeat it, not some crazy analysis of a friend of mine who went to those, what's the name, those Brussels suburbs Islamists. And they said, it's a much more complex problem. The paradox is that you last way of so-called terrorists, where they come from, parents were already much more integrated. And, uh, and uh, so uh, I think I would even problematize this. First, why integration? I wouldn't enforce integration of people. Maybe we should learn a certain distance and so on. I hate this liberal multiculturalist idea, we should all integrate, understand each other. Sorry, I don't understand myself. How could I understand you? You, the only, you probably don't understand yourselves. Islamists don't. The only thing I believe in, here I'm an authentic multiculturalist, is that uh, to understand an ethnic group, maybe even a person, you must estrange, you must acquire a distance. Almost all great writers did this. Look, Joyce wrote the greatest novel about Ireland, <laughs> from Trieste and then Zürich. Beckett, haha, <laughs> he even changed his language and did it in French and so on. I think that even you mentioned Borges, Argentina. An Argentinian friend told me that, you know, this Argentinian identity, Pampas and so on, all that, it's uh, produced by English, British travelers around 1800, and then Argentinians, when they got rid of the Spain domination, they identified with this foreign view, you know. So, okay, to cut it short, my answer to you is the catastrophe, I agree with you on this pessimist list. Let's go to the end, my God. Uh, 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 Right-wing uh, populists today were there in power are the only ones who dare to openly refer to the working class and not just rhetorically. Even look what Kaczynski government, a nightmare, did in Poland. Lowered retirement, better. So it's, we are in this crazy situation where uh, uh, right-wing populists are the only ones who dare to do old social democratic measures in a limited amount while Obviously, the case of Greece demonstrates that if you want a perfect austerity program, the best thing is to get left in power and so on. And I, uh, 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 just to, now I'm really at the end, believe me or not, uh, uh, I think that uh, uh, the problem with the left is, I think this is the, we live in the negative legacy of 68, which brought about this culturalization, as it were, of leftist politics. It, I noticed how systematically social problems, political problems are culturalized. You know, like, we have racism, oh, you do a kind of a totally fake psychoanalysis, it means we are not uh, open enough to the others, we project our traumas into the others, and so on, and so on. And this brings me to one of the most stupid statements. I almost become Goebbels here and say, let's burn books where they claim this, which is, uh, uh, 
it's really like I'm speaking. Like it's like I feel now like uh, uh, de- uh, like a vampire swallowing garlic. You know that uh, uh, an enemy is somebody whom we we were not ready to listen to to hear his story. Ah, nice to hear this. So Hitler was our enemy because we did. No, we have to accept it. There are real enemies out there. It may be Islamists, it may be our fundamentalists, and so on and so on. The left should stop this attitude of we are only our own enemies whenever we project something into an enemy, and so on and so on. So I think I agree with you and with both. We should... uh, Critically analyze this, let's call it, cultural turn of the left. I think this is almost, I would say, the, the origin of the catastrophe. And you pointed out something very important. The extent to which, although beneath surface, for example, political correctness in the United States, I'm shocked to find this again and again, has a class dimension. Although they would not admit it, but it's enlightened intellectual classes way to dismiss ordinary people who still mistreat their wives and so on. You absolutely cannot understand resistance against political correctness without the class dimension, and that's what Donald Trump used in a masterful way. So as Vinetu said there in, ich habe gesprochen. So, Hauk, sorry for talking too much. I was giving my great speech. What is your private flirting or there with? What uh, was going my, on there? You uh, know? Uh, <laughs> this is my official communication with the organizer, my agent, Alexander Oetzelinger. This is purely official and we have to, to respect certain time limits here. Uh, Don't tell me this. This is uh, the old, most disgusting leftist strategy when they get tired and don't want debate to go on. Just You can go even one step lower and, you know, my leftist like to evoke, we could go on, but there are cleaning ladies who want to go on earlier, you know. All excuses come right just to cut the debate, you know. Uh, Slava, you have the privilege for a last word. I'm, yeah. Say something which is not very typical for me. I will be very. I'm, there are many points where we agree. I, will, I totally agree with you that the 70s, the situation was totally different. Just compare the spirit of that time, sexual liberation, with today's political correct. And you see an incredible difference. But I want to finish really with one thought. Nonetheless, we shouldn't forget. Politics, and I propose a slogan to you, very clumsy, for your party, like, mit Peter, schöne Wetter, für Österreich. So, <laughs> all the luck at the European elections. <laughs> yes, Lauer, would, please, Lauer, I think this merits uh, an answer. Do you have your microphone? Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, Did you get uh, the Yes, I see, but, you know, my problem is this one. Look at, how do you call it, gilets jaunes, yellow vests in Frankreich. Yes, this is exactly the limit of links. They did exactly this. Local rebellion and so on and so on, and they got support from Salvini and from... uh, from Salvini and and, and from Trump and so on and so on. I... uh, 
And I had long debates with this. And even my friend, with whom I have differences, but basically I support him, Varoufakis, admitted this. The big mistake, no mistake, uh, Greek fiasco shows the limit of this idea we can resist it through strong national government and so on and so on. Second thing, I doubt that it's really that those who are most immobilized are those who suffer today. First, I don't know what's the situation here in Österreich, but in Slovenian, the big problem are precisely those over mobile young people in Slovenia in younger generation, till 30, 35 years. It's almost around 50% if not more of people who have precarious jobs. And this means in today's situation also very mob mobile. They, they go to, to Austria, to Germany to get temporary jobs and so on and so on. So uh, uh, I... Of course, and the limit also of this local approach is for me Spain. You see Podemos, yes, wonderful, their big ideology was listen to ordinary people, to their complaints, and so on and so on. Well, to, in today's Europe, as you hinted up correctly, because, okay, ideological manipulation, whatever, but nonetheless, if you listen to ordinary people and to their complaints, well, you will certainly get a very strong anti-immigrant message, you know. So what I'm saying is that, why do I mention very briefly Podemos? Because, yes, their ideology was this, their leader, Iglesias, said once, even in consciously provocative way, vulgar words. Fuck left and right, fuck everything. Ordinary people have their problems, listen to them. Yes, we should listen to their problems. We will not get answers from them. That's why the struggle is so, the struggle is so difficult. I'm just saying that, uh, that uh, if we just focus on this, you will, this, type of resistance, local, look, what will be the result of Yellow West or of Brexit, which also had strong support? I can predict it with absolute certainty. If United Kingdom does Brexit, it will be even more brutally exposed without minimal protection to international capital and so on and so on. Problems are real. I don't believe in ordinary people's wisdom. No, they have problems. And this, they are no worse and no better than us. They are confused like we are and so on and so on. I don't, you know, that's for me the, the problem of this. Look at Podemos. Again, in the last elections, when they had to propose a kind of a program, it was what? It was a very moderate social democracy and so on. It was nothing. But I must be sympathetic to them. The reason they are now in decay is also because quite heroically they remain open towards Catalonia independence. They were not for it, but they didn't want to condemn it. They play an honorable game there. But again, this is for me, the, I don't be, yes, you should of course mobilize people on their own concerns. But wait a minute, these concerns are not specific to them. Why not, in, why not think about building this kind of a lateral international links, you know, because when people say specificity, I always think about China. They say we want to build socialism in a specific Chinese way. 
specific Chinese way is precisely universal capitalism which you introduce into, you know? For me, again, uh, uh, I think that uh, we, uh, like, okay, I would agree with you, listen to local concerns and so on. But these concerns should absolutely not be reduced to nation state to one's own ethnic group and so on. But, my God, why are you just looking at, at me? Why don't you say something? Please. Welche Bewegung? Fridays for Future. Okay. Kann, kann das jemand? Uh, well, it's, uh, first, I was appalled, yes, by this Angela Merkel statement, because if I read it correctly, understood it correctly, she played this paranoia game, that this small girl cannot be alone, there must be some dark forces behind, and so on and so on. No, you know what? I, I totally support this movement, uh, Greta, and so on. You know why I like her? But don't take this in a psychological way, just as an attitude. Her autism is part of her message. You know, it's precisely uh, at a certain level, we need a certain type of dogmatic approach today. Dogmatic is, can be a very good. What do I mean by this? I don't want to shock you in a cheap way. Listen, would you like to live in a society where you would have to, uh, to debate democratically all the time, should women be raped or not? No, I would like to live in a society where when somebody says, ah, but you know, maybe women enjoy it and so on, he simply disqualifies himself as an idiot. In this sense, there should be, and it's the same, and here we should measure re, re, uh, moralist fall. Why not use these terms? Did you notice how our standards were lowered in the last 15, 20 years in this sense? We silently accepted Foltern torture. It's now de facto accepted. Now you will be cynical and you will say, but they were always doing it. Ah, I believe in appearances. Of course. Most of them were doing it. But it's a big, incredibly important step to say, so let's legalize it at least. And because first, if you know how power functions, if you legalize it, they will do it even more in a different way and so on and so on. So again, uh, our, again, a psychoanalytic notion from Freud, Verleugnung, uh, this, je sais bien, mais quand même. I know very well, but... I still don't accept it. Isn't this our predominant attitude towards uh, ecological problems? We know very well, and scientists, analysts are telling us the dangers, but nonetheless, don't take it too seriously, we have to be careful, and so on, and so on, maybe. And Greta's message, this is her autism. I just know it very well. Cut off your mecomem, you know. And we need more of this approach. This is the line of Antigone for me, you know. She is the dogmatic. She says to Creon, sorry for vulgarity, fuck off, I want to bury my brother. And Creon says, I know, but nonetheless, look at the political situation and so on and so on. And remember always, she is the dogmatic, clearly, in the play. She doesn't give argument. No, unwritten laws, fuck off. I stand by it. And we maybe need more of this, uh, of this approach, you know. She doesn't say we know everything and so on. She just brought out this structure of 
fetishistische Verleugnung. I know very well, but then you find all the excuses. You know, that's also how, for example, false liberal anti-racist fight racism. Yes, it's horrible, but nonetheless, it's a complex situation. We have to do it gradually and so on and so on. Sometimes a fresh wave of this type of dogmaticism, even this autism. Autism means she doesn't want to play this rhetorical games. And sometimes she provides a very good answer. I remember one of the lowest points, apart from Merkel, was a Belgian politician who reacted to her saying that children should, uh, she should instead of striking, should rather stay in schools and learn. And uh, was it her or another man, mo member of that movement who said, learn what? F what can we learn from you? How to ruin our earth or what? And so on. You know, I, she doesn't even pretend, I read her stuff, I have all the answers and so on and so on. Her message is simply, and it's a deep message because most of us even, I don't think we really take ecological threat seriously. We think it's something, yes, it makes us... I even think that the subtle way the ruling ideology functions is to use it as a way to make us feel good. Yeah, yeah, it's a threat, so I will recycle, I feel so good, you see. I'm not just a consumerist egotist, I do something for Mother Nature also, and so on, and so on. And... Uh, her message is just this one. Yes, we don't know. And I accept all those. There are also intelligent skeptics, not just uh, global warming denials. We say maybe we don't know this, that, and so on, and so on. But what we know is that the situation is extremely serious. And her message is just let's take the game seriously. Stop with this, you know, double, triple game. So absolutely, I think that, absolutely that the most dangerous uh, attitude today in, with concerning ecology is not this outright denial, but this type of, you know, common sense skepticism, but maybe it's not so bad, let's be careful, who knows. Yes, we don't know, but as every intelligent ecologist will tell you, when we will know for sure it will definitely be too late, you know. <laughs> das ist ein Stichwort leider. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.